You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopoly through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. Listeners, this week we're joined by Peter Smith. He's a social housing developer and a Georgist via Devon in the UK and New Zealand. So, uh, Peter, you've been one of the the young Georgists that I like discussing the ways of the world with. And when it comes to the UK, there's a lot happening when it comes to housing and the need for tax reform. Now, uh, one of the big things that uh, listeners uh, may be aware of, I've mentioned it once before, but I wanted to go into it in a bit of detail, but uh, the statistical revelation that finally the UK has figured out how to separate land from housing. Now, the Office of National Statistics has uh, produced a, a graph and you sent me an update there. Uh, how often are they updating this graph? It seems like it's only just uh, hit the press in the last six to nine months and there's already another update. Yeah, that's really useful information and, and it would make an awful lot clearer. I, I do wonder if it has something to do with the book that came out last year, Rethinking the Economics of Land and Housing, which is uh, Josh Ryan Collins, Toby Lloyd and Laurie McFarlane. It's a brilliant book. You, I'm sure you're aware of it yourself, but it really just sort of introduces um, to the modern age old ideas, and, and, but it's, it's really well written thoroughly draws the link between the way the functioning of the uh, the land market and and the housing market and fundamental economic system that we've got so uh, full of really well researched and um, recent, you know, well documented evidence to really make a very strong case and it's it's, the, it's absolutely crucial knowledge for any um, economist who's trying to understand you know, where we've gone wrong and, and how to put it right is, is, is this body of knowledge. So I do wonder whether there's a link there between this book coming out last year and Valuation Office Agency or the, or the National Statistics Office finally producing land value information again. Yes, well, I've been uh, chasing uh, Laurie McFarlane to come on the show, so I must uh, re-engage with him because everyone uh, who's read it keeps talking about how important uh, that book has been in the UK in terms of uh, pushing for land reform. And uh, if we go back to this graph, uh, one thing that I was struck by, and listeners can find it in the uh, show notes at earthsharing.org.au, uh, is how similar the growth in land prices is to here in Australia, where in uh, the mid-90s it was pretty flat, but by 98, 99, there's a bit of a trajectory. And then 2001 onwards, it really takes off. And uh, I'm wondering whether you might be able to put your finger on the button on what happened around the, the turn of the millennium. We were told that the millennium bug was coming and it was going to you know, destroy the global economy. Well, it hasn't quite uh, destroyed it, but it's certainly curtailed the opportunities of many young people who haven't been able to get in on this bubble uh, way back uh, when. Uh, do you know what happened around around that time in terms of uh, uh, Britain's uh, economic equation? My 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 uh, my, globe, my sort of general answer is is I think that was it's kind of what we've had is a sort of capitulation really to to a, to an economic model where it's all about rent seeking. So 
prior to that, the economy was was more diverse in, in, in what was driving it. But at that point, they really just decided, you know, the only way to get <laughs> the only way to get the economy moving is 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 through the housing market and the whole the the, the relationship between credit generation through mortgages, sort of super fueling things. And and kind of politi- the political alignment to just support ever rising house prices is virtually the only game in town. Mm. Um, so the the economy really lost its track uh, from, from you know no longer about creating real value. It's all about rent seeking. So that's probably that would be my quickest answer. Um, early two thousand, it was it was Tony Blair and, and Gordon Brown at the time, um, sort of leading on on the, the economic policy. And yeah, that was it was the famous quote, "No more boom and bust." Of course, they did have a bust around two thousand seven, two thousand eight, and that was, you know, if you subscribe to the eighteen-year property cycle, that was when it hit the skids um, at the end of that period. But of course, what happened? It should have been a, it should have been a, a much bigger reset than it actually was. Um, they managed to sort of keep the old model on life support by essentially putting everyone else into debt and and um, you know the age of austerity, but the economy in general has suffered badly since um, since the, the global financial crash here. Um, you know, the country's sort of more or less falling apart at the seams. Public services are closing down. The potholes in the roads. The NHS is under stress, and all these all these things. That, you know, and, and inequality is just simply getting worse. Rising homelessness. Uh, more and more people sort of having to sleep and um, being given bed and bed and breakfast accommodation, emergency accommodation. So it's a really sort of the, the society of two halves opening up ever wider, and and all of that is simply because they've just trying to keep the keep the show on the road as far as a sort of housing market driven economy, rent seeking driven economy. They always say that uh, timing is everything. Well, if you were someone who uh, bought property in uh, ninety seven ninety eight, twenty years later, that had. Uh, in terms of uh, land prices in the UK, they had increased by 500% over that time. So uh, just immense, uh, this first come, first serve type philosophy that underpins uh, our biggest financial investment for most people, that is buying a house. So Peter, how, how is that intergenerational wealth battle going on in the UK? It seems like it's really hotting up uh, what sort of debates are occurring online and and in the public at uh, various forums you attend? Well, I, I guess there are signs that the, the renters are sort of starting to fight back a bit. I think, um, you know, you've got, particularly in London from what I've, I mean, I spent a few years in London and, and there there are there is a sort of resistance going on there with, um, I think you've had one, one, uh, some people on your show actually previously who are involved in the sort of, uh, those neighbourhoods, there's, there's sort of gentrification battles where certain neighbourhoods are being, um, which are essentially social housing neighbourhoods are being cleansed of the, the previous tenants. Uh, and, and, you know, as, as, you, as I'm sure you're well aware, you've, you've got the sort of battle between the super profits being made by developers essentially selling apartments to offshore uh, investors. And the government policy of help to buy is just the most stupid policy ever. It just lines the developers' profits and ultimately drives up prices even further um, and uses a taxpayer subsidy to do that. But yeah, there is a resistance. So you've got generation rent, 
Um, there are a few, and there's a sort of renters' union forming in London at the moment, from what I've heard, and it could be happening elsewhere in the country. I'm really kept abreast of, of everything, but there are there are signs that that there's a bit more organisation, but it's quite marginal still. It's not it's not a big wave. I think one thing that has happened actually, a lot of the discontent has found its expression in in the support for um, Jeremy Corbyn's the Labour Party, which has sort of lurched to the left. And um, that's that's been a real kind of breath of fresh air because it's kind of I think a lot of the discontent is is finding its way into them. It's not necessarily or it, it, it's partly um, about the well, a lot of it's about the inequality of um, intergenerational inequality. But it's even I think it cuts across the generations, winners and losers through all generations. And people have decided, right, we, we need to ditch this neo neoliberal model. They might not quite frame it in the way that we would um, with our sort of particular focus on land and housing. But nevertheless, I think it's very much the same sort of drivers of that um, that kind of uh, resistance. So I think they, you know, obviously, Theresa May got an awful fright the last uh, snap election she called last year. Um, and uh, all indications, I think, are that if they had that election again now, she would be, the, the, the Conservatives would be t- totally wiped out. The way I see it is... Um, You've got this ever ever declining proportion of uh, owner occupiers in the housing stock. So basically, the number of private renters is going up. Number of social renters is kind of probably declining slightly in the overall mix, but mainly the number of owner occupiers is declining. So the older generation are heavily um, they vote Tory, um, they're heavily voting Tory, and heavily invested in in owner occupation. So they're dying off, and the young generation coming through are, you know, stuck with the consequences of this dysfunctional system, uh, bearing the brunt of it. And so, and and I think there is a there's a real resentment, and yeah, just uh, a realization that that we need to change the system. So that's finding its form in in, in increasing support for um for for sort of left a leftist approach. One of the the. The elements that I've seen is a reaction of Theresa May to the, the the strong challenge Jeremy Corbyn put to her has been the calling for a inquiry into land banking in the UK, and uh, that's something we absolutely dream of here. And it's sort of a, a a byproduct of all the good work of people like Fred Harrison and Dave Wetzel. Have uh, been putting into the UK, Ross Ashcroft with the Renegade Economist, the New Economics Foundation. There's a real groundswell of uh, economic uh, fervour there, the need for reform. Steve Keen's over there. Everyone must be talking about the need for a new economic frontier. And here's the Conservative Party who've put their finger on the button and said, well, let's have a look at this role of land bankers who buy up land on the edge of cities, sit on it for decades, lobby for infrastructure to be built to their area, get the land rezoned and uh, make millions and millions of dollars out of the golden pen tick. So do you know much about what's happening with that uh, a land banking inquiry that's been running now for maybe four to six weeks, Peter Smith? Um, well, I've I haven't. I'm not sure what the latest is actually on the land bank inquiry, but um, I am aware that uh, I think what every time that the housing crisis gets right, it's it sort of bumped up the up the. Um, Peter, up the let's just. Agenda. Sorry, I just want to cut that off and just start off. Definitely not a. I don't know the latest sort of thing. You know the interesting thing about the land bank inquiry is. 
that it gets ratcheted up every time. Or I don't know what you were saying. Yeah, well, it's um, I, the 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 um, yeah the response. I guess previously they always invite the developers around the table. In fact, back in October, Theresa May said, "Right, I'm going to take personal responsibility for." the housing crisis, because you've had a, a revolving chair of housing ministers who don't ever achieve anything because, well, because they don't grapple with the fundamental root causes of the problem and they take their advice from developers who are making super profits. That seems to be the problem. Obviously, the Conservative Party are heavily funded by developers who are making these super profits, so it's very difficult for them to, to do something fundamental about it. But I think they, they can't ignore the fact that developers will always deny that they're land banking um, and they always blame the planning system for, for holding back their ability to deliver homes. The only answer they've got, well, they, they say, right, we need to build more homes in order to solve the housing crisis. Now, you can, that's actually not necessarily true, I don't think, but it's the only answer they've got. But the, their logic should follow them that if they increase the numbers of builds on a, on, on site, um, if they increase the the, the uh, the tempo of building, then it will reduce prices and make homes more affordable, but that will go against their own profits. Therefore, there's an inbuilt mechanism for them not to simply not to do that. There's a relationship really between between the, what they call saturation of the housing market. So they sort of drip feed the market to avoid price falls. The absorption rate, that was the word I was looking for. Mm. Um, I think one, one, new, one new build for every nine existing homes sold. So there's a very fixed ratio. There was a there's a report done by Savills um, about that a, a few years ago. It was just a, a statistic that where they showed very clearly that although the number of homes sold every year in the UK um, goes through pretty big peaks and troughs, the, the, the percentage of new builds always tracks very, very closely a sort of one to nine ratio in the overall number of sales. Gee, that's a... That that's a killer data point there, Peter. I'd love to get a hold of that one, and it would match up really well with uh, one of the other more innovative graphs coming out of the UK. Which uh, again, we have this housing supply mantra pushed by both sides of politics, and of course, the ever dominant, ever present property lobby. That uh, housing supply is the key. Well, I've latched onto a graph rec- uh, about last year that it revealed the cumulative number of unbuilt rezoned sites in the UK and it just keeps going through and through the roof and it basically says, look, there's thousands of lots of land rezoned but uh, you developers are... uh, just drip feeding it to the market. So that uh, stat you've just revealed of one new build for every nine properties sold, uh, wow, that's quite some sort of real estate for ransom uh, formula there. Now, uh, Peter, let's break for uh, a musical interlude here on 3CR's Renegade Economist.
right, listeners, how is that rocking out to uh, real uh, renegade economist type theme song? And that one was by Vorte out of the UK. It's called Share the Rents. First time it's been aired uh, on radio. And Peter Smith, you're the man behind that band. Uh, tell us all about uh, what drove you to write that song. Yeah, well, I, I guess I got into songwriting maybe three or four years ago. And, and of course, I'm interested in this uh, type of economics that you are as well. And I thought, right, I'm going to write one song about this theme. I don't want to write a whole album, but just one will do. And so I put my mind to sort of uh, to work and, and came up with uh, trying to, as succinctly as possible, kind of um, in a very pithy uh, style of a pop song, try to sort of record a very basic message about the fundamental drawing the link really between renting and the fact that there's this sort of exploitative thing going on there between the tenant and the landlord and the actual wider economic solution, which uh, which I subscribed. Peter Smith, who is the wealth creator? That's uh, one of the riffs in, in this uh, catchy tune. Well, anyone who works for a living is a wealth creator in that it's the only way that wealth can be created is through work. That's the sort of economic fundamental given. But some people acquire wealth not by working, but by taking it from other people. And, and um, so it's that parasitic exploiter. And I've identified that as the landlord. And um, I think that's, I can, you, you could, we could unpack that a lot. As in, um, you know, There's a certain part of being a landlord which is not exploitative, which is providing a service. It's keeping the house maintained. It's the admin that's required to have tenants in, tenants out. All that stuff is genuine work, just like if you were hiring a car, you know, the car hire firm has to do genuine work to make sure that the car is there where, uh, and it's in good shape and, and that they can process the uh, the users of that car. So they're providing a good service. And, and uh, to a certain extent, the landlord function has that, has that about it as well. But there's an element of it, which is pure exploitation, and that is to do with the monopoly aspect of the land and housing market, mm. whereby they're actually able to make an additional profit on top, which comes at the expense of, of essentially the the income of the of the of the tenant, and it's and it's that targeting that aspect of it. I think um, a friend of mine sort of has, has says he doesn't he doesn't like the way that that we he, he says it's not about targeting individuals and criticising individuals because let's face it, landlords are just making do with the system that we've got and you know doing the best they can to shore up their own their own wealth. Given that. They haven't made made the rules of the game, so we need to change the rules of the game to be more equitable uh, and fair. But we shouldn't target individuals, and and I can see that I can see his point. But at the same time, I also feel that we need to sort of speak the the, the cold hard truth that that there is an exploitative thing going on there, and it is happening on an individual level as well. And therefore, although it, it might be slightly uh, difficult to try and, you know, it's, it's probably not the best approach to stigmatise individuals. Nevertheless, I think it doesn't it doesn't um, hurt to sort of just to sort of make people maybe think a bit more about the their role in the economy and how um, they're not going to challenge the economy unless unless they may be given sort of um, so unless there is a sort of resistance from from the from the the exploited side of the equation to say mm. look you know we actually actually we're not okay with this you know we, if we all pretend we're okay with it nothing's going to change. So if we were to uh, break that down then, if a landlord was going to increase your rents, uh, say $200 a week, you'd like to think that uh, they'd spent 
forty, fifty thousand dollars on improving that house to justify the extra rent. But if they are increasing that rent based on the new train station nearby, then that is. Uh, well, you've called it parasitic exploitation, which, uh, fair enough, is is a little bit uh, incendiary. But uh, perhaps another way, a, a less, a more disarming term would be to uh, uh, reference that as um, a legal privilege they're extorting there in in having this. Uh, ownership over land rather than a form of stewardship. So how do we share the rents? How do we share the earth, Peter Smith? Introducing a land value tax system is for me the best answer. There are other ways of capturing value. Essentially, it's, I think we just need to introduce a greater awareness about, um, about what rent is fundamentally in its fundamental economic definition. So if if uh, once we understand the sort of difference between rent and productive enterprise, um, and we have a clear, we we understand that clearly, and and rent takes all sorts of forms. It's not just about land rent. It's monopoly rents. It's you know all, all those things. It's whether a monopoly over the railroads or the the um, utility company or intellectual property or all those different forms. They're all forms of rent. Once we understand what it actually is, we can start to design an economic system that. Uh, uses rent for public good because rent's a natural occurring phenomenon to a certain extent because land is finite. So there will always be rent as in people want to compete for the same, the best piece of land generates a natural competition. So whoever gets it, it's it's only natural really that the most popular piece of land attracts a higher rent. That's kind of like a law of gravity that, that can't be, that can't be um, wished out of existence. But what we do about it is we actually take that value and we use it for public good, we share it across society as a whole. I suppose one of the points when you talk rent is that we should just point out it's economic rent. Um, it's a land rent due to that locational battle that occurs for whoever wants to live next to the the Sydney Harbour Bridge right near uh, Piper's Point, one of the most beautiful places on the planet. But then there's the building, the rent on the building you pay, which is what uh, is sort of that terminology confusion is something that throws people and that's why you're saying look people really have to understand what rent is that that's uh, the gist of it and what a tragedy that monopoly is more than a board game i love that line in the song that's right that's um you know you probably know the history of the game monopoly um but uh it was it was invented back in um around the turn of the the 19th to the 20th century Elizabeth Maggie, I think her name was, she was setting out, she was trying to explain the economic principles of Henry George in a board game form. And, um, and, and that was the whole point to show that, yeah, ultimately, if we, if, we, if we don't intervene in the game, there will just be one winner who will own it all. And that was, that was what she was trying to teach. Uh, of course, that lesson got lost. And, and, and ironically, people play Monopoly and think it's great that they, that they managed to win the game. Uh, and um, yeah, it became a sort of iconic game. I'm sure there's plenty of budding property developers out there, entrepreneurs who cut their teeth on Monopoly when they were kids, and 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 it just encouraged them to go out and behave the way they did. So that was that was kind of tragic in some ways. But but ultimately, that game is all about showing that is that really the social outcome that we want? That that some people own it all, and others just have to pay the rent and basically always just be fighting to keep the head above water because that is, if you don't intervene in the game, that is what will happen. And, and it's not just the game, it's, you know, that's, 
that's the economic reality of the system that we have now. Mm. So it's high time we um, we changed the rules of the game so that we had shared prosperity and shared the rent. Uh, and it would unlock such a huge amount of human potential in our societies um, if we were to if we were to make that switch. It's very difficult to do so because we've got such a deeply ingrained cultural attachment to this sort of property owning um, privatized land model. So it's very hard to um, try and make it, make that shift culturally. We're so attached to the old model, but um, it's it's almost we're getting to the point now. I think where we just simply have to make that shift. It's becoming more and more apparent. There's the, all the other answers have failed. Um, and so we have to sort of grasp that nettle. And so that I guess you could say my song is is a little bit of a sort of making a little a tiny little contribution to that sort of change in in paradigm thinking that I think we need to see. And hopefully, hopefully it will, it will um, well, my song won't make much difference, I'm sure, I'm not in any illusions about that. But um, ultimately, um, you know, as, as particularly this, as the younger generation comes through and they realise that, that, that a new model is, um, is necessary, uh, we'll, we'll start to break down that old cultural um, sort of hegemony of, of the, of the private, privatised land system that we've got. Well, Peter Smith, thanks so much for joining us here on 3CR's Renegade Economists. Thanks very much, Carl. Thanks a million for listening. Check the show notes on earthsharing.org.au.